Introducing the two-way V4, where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance. With fuel cell, each step feels explosive, delivering unparalleled energy return. Paired with fresh foam, experience maximum comfort throughout the game. Its lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility. Whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the two-way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the two-way for yourself at newbalance.com. Welcome into the Odds and Audibles podcast. I'm Matt Prem. Eric Scopel is with me as always. And guys, great show today. We've got a lot to discuss. We've got a reportedly new hire for the Oregon football program, new receivers coach that comes with some impressive recruiting ties. We've got some Francis Socorro transfer discussion. We looked like the Oregon basketball program was going to go an offseason without a transfer and that changed. And now... Also, we'll recap the WNBA draft. Eric was on conference calls with all three of the Oregon draftees who all went in the first round. Sabrina Inescu obviously went number one. And I want to remind you guys out there today that if you want to subscribe to DuckTerritory.com, you can do so for just $1 for your first month and then $9.95 thereafter, or you can sign up for an annual membership that's billed one time of $75.18, and uh, you, you get a savings of about $3.30 and, and compared to the monthly uh, billing if you choose to go annual inside scoop, expert analysis, and opinion. Read all the content across the 24-7 Sports Network, access to people like Eric, Kevin Wade, and myself, and you get exclusive recruiting coverage. And, yes, working football, working basketball, uh, they are all in recruiting periods right now, so we've got updates on all of that. So, all right, Eric, um, let's dive in first with football. And it's a, it's a unique deal because Oregon currently, they, Joe Van Boatnight left the program. They mutually parted ways, what, one day into spring football? They had one practice, is yeah. that right? Yeah, that's right. He he coached the first practice and then was was noticeably absent afterwards. And so they they then had three more practices without a full time receivers coach, and they've gone basically now a month without a receivers coach. And they were looking and looking, and they were doing some interviews, and then obviously everything came to a, a screeching halt because of what's going on around the world, and a hiring freeze was made and. Uh, on Friday morning, though, we found out that uh, Brian McClendon has reportedly agreed upon to become the new receivers coach at Oregon. He was co-offensive coordinator, receivers coach at South Carolina uh, the last couple of seasons. Also spent some time at Georgia coaching running backs and other positions there and the register guard, well, we haven't been able to rep- confirm this. The register guard is reporting that Oregon football was given an exempt to the hiring freeze to officially ink the, the, the contract with Brian McClendon. The school has not announced it yet, so we'll see when that happens. But it does look at least like maybe a handshake deal is in place where once that hiring freeze is lifted or if the exemption is processed and, 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 and sent through, Brian McClendon will be Oregon's new receivers coach, and he's got a pretty good track record. He's got a great track record. Um, 
you look back in 2014, he was 247 Sports National Recruiter of the Year. Um, that class alone, uh, Georgia, while well, he was coaching at Georgia, I should say, that class alone, they signed three five-star players, Nick Chubb, Sony Michelle, Lorenzo Carter. Obviously, Chubb and Michelle are players that you're probably familiar with uh, based upon professional careers. And then uh, he's also been uh, responsible for landing a couple other five-stars you might have heard of. Uh, Todd Gurley, who was, of course, a very prominent NFL he's, player. He's good. He's pretty good. And then uh, Keith Marshall, who uh, didn't quite pan out as well, but uh, they're, they're highly regarded players. So he's proven he can recruit. And I think you have to like the fact that Oregon has now gone out and added two assistant coaches in the last couple of months with strong ties to kind of the southeast part of the country. Uh, obviously, Moorhead spent some time uh, in, a, in the northeast as well, but he obviously spent most recent stop was at Mississippi State. But with McClendon, you're looking at somebody who grew up in the Georgia area, played at Georgia, um, coached at Georgia, most recently coached at South Carolina. He, this is going to be kind of his first stop outside of the SEC uh, kind of footprint down there, and it'll be interesting to see how that translates. Is he going to be able to be somebody that continues to recruit at a very high level and uh, and brings top-tier talent to Oregon? And given the type of talent you have down in the southeast, I think these kind of connections have to be seen as really exciting ones. Um, and he, he is somebody that, that rose up the ranks pretty quickly. You look back through his coaching uh, kind of career, started as a GA at Georgia in 2007, was shortly after that hired as the full-time running backs coach, he actually coached a bowl game at Georgia in 2015 as an interim coach. They won that game and then moved over to South Carolina, like you said previously, uh, as the offensive coordinator and wide receivers coach. He comes to Oregon as the pass game coordinator, wide receivers coach. I think this is a significant hire. And given all that is going on, uh, Oregon's ability to pull in a, a coach with this kind of track record, we should mention he's only 36 years old, so he's still relatively young. Um, this has all the makings of another one of those Mario Cristobal kind of home run hires. Obviously, we'll have to wait and see how this all plays out. But I think a very, very uh, exciting and, uh, at the very least, you bring in a top-tier recruiter to help sort some stuff out. Yeah, and this is important because, look, Oregon needs – they need some help at the receiver positions. They've got some talent in the wings, but there's no doubt that they need to continue to upgrade the position. They need to continue to bring in the high-level – athlete at Oregon and they've done they've done a decent job they've made some headway you know guys they've done some really good development with a guy like Johnny Johnson uh they've done some really good development with some guys like Jalen Red but they've done some good recruiting now with a guy like Micah Pittman and Brian Addison and Devin Williams but the reality is, is they they still need to continue to bring in more players at this position and they need to be able to go and get now, I think, you know, kind of those game changers. Like you pop in the tape at Clemson, pop in the tape at Alabama, pop in the tape at Ohio State, at Georgia, and watch their receivers at LSU. I can't believe I haven't said LSU yet. I was going to say, don't forget about LSU, Matt. <laughs> Pretty good this year, too. Watch those guys and, and watch those offenses and see what – those receivers are like compared to Oregon's. And Oregon has good receivers, no doubt about it. I'm not doubting that for a a minute. But there's just a difference. And that's the next step in the evolution of the Oregon offense is going out and getting those game-changing NFL prospect receivers 
at that position. I think Oregon has a couple guys on roster who could find themselves on an NFL roster down the road and, and they're gonna, but they're gonna need some development. They're gonna need some, some big steps to, to make in their, in their personal gains. Uh, Oregon needs to continue to go out and find some elite prospects at this position. And McClendon is a coach who has a significant track record of being an elite recruiter and a guy that's, that's gotten some good production out of the receiver position. And I think if we're just being honest here, uh, there were some shortcomings from Jovan Bonite, the predecessor here, to recruit and at least finish these recruitments with wide receivers. You think back to last year's class, obviously you lose Johnny Wilson on signing day. Uh, you do sign Chris Hudson, who is a player I, I think everybody's pretty high on, but that was that was all they landed, one wide receiver in that class. And I think going even into this, the second signing period, um, there was a lot of optimism and hope that they would go out and land maybe one or two more wide receivers. That didn't come together. So you go out and you find a coach in Brian McClendon who is very well, like we've established on this podcast already, very well, uh, I guess, received as a recruiter. Um, one of the top recruiters in the country over the last five or six years. Uh, that feels like a very intentional choice. Not saying that you're excluding the on-the-field stuff because obviously there are going to have to be certain specifications that Cristobal wants from that part of it too. But I do think getting a coach who has a proven track record as a recruiter had to have been a high priority on this list. And I think you get that with someone like McClendon for the reasons we've already stated. And now it's just going to be a matter of kind of letting him go and, and, and see what it, what it is he can accomplish on the trail. Uh, is he going to be able to utilize some of these ties in the Southeast where there are some elite elite level wide receivers prospects, is he going to be able to go grab those guys? And, and more importantly, probably, how is he going to be able to establish relationship with some of the guys in the West Coast in this 2021 class? Because like we've talked about in the podcast before, some of the top receivers in the country this year are in the western part of the country, and Oregon is in a decent shot for some of those guys. So you have to think McClendon, some of his first calls are going to be to some of these guys in the West Coast. Don't you think, Matt? 100%. That's the thing here is that there, there's two folds from a recruiting perspective with McClendon. One, like you said, that he's got to be able to quickly get into a good place with a, a large group of prospects out west. Sure. That, that Oregon is recruiting, uh, at the receiver position. And Oregon is very lucky that in 2021 out west, the receiver position is stacked. I mean, the number one receiver uh, and the country, Emeka Abuka is on is in Washington, and and Oregon's probably not in the top two or three there, but they're still a finalist. They're still in the in that top group, and maybe they can make up some ground there. Troy Franklin is the third best receiver in the country, and Oregon is for sure in a good spot here. I'm very close to putting a crystal ball in there as well. Uh, you you go down a couple spots, and Oregon is recruiting. Uh, a couple other receivers out west, Michael Jackson being one of them, Christian Dixon being another. Uh, you, you've got Maven Anderson. Uh, there, there's a long list of guys that are interested in Oregon out west. Now, also, the Ducks are in a good spot with some guys across the country. Dante Fortin from, from Baltimore, back east. He's very high on Oregon right now. We know that... Uh, Gay Hall is a guy that's given Oregon some interest and, um, so, so there's certainly some big names that are very interested in the Oregon program. Now, McClendon also has a really good track record of rooting, recruiting the state of Georgia. And the state of Georgia is a very good 
state for high school football. And Oregon, the last couple of seasons, has started to recruit that state a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. And they're starting now to add a couple guys in the recruiting classes the last, what, past couple of, of seasons? I mean, you, you look in the 2020 class, and they signed one player, Braden Swinson, from Georgia. You look at the 2019 class, and they signed another player from the state of Georgia who was just, it was just one guy, but it, it, it's somebody, and that was Jamal Hill. You go back to 2018 recruiting class, and they added another guy, uh, and, and was it Andrew Johnson from, from Tifton County? So all defensive players, and I think McClendon will help there as well, but you're starting to get into the state of Georgia three straight years where you've signed a guy. And then I don't think that is a, I don't think that's a coincidence that Oregon goes out and signs or hires a coach that has a really good track record in a, a flush state like Georgia for recruiting. No, it's not by accident. I, I don't think there's any question about it. And again, I, I think with Moorhead, who also is a good recruiter and also comes from at least not the footprint Oregon is used to you know, succeeding with, I guess. It's not a West Coast history guy. I, I think it's pretty clear Cristobal is certainly not afraid to kind of spread out, spread out and, and bring in some coaches with backgrounds from different parts of the country. And I think it's going to be interesting to see over these next couple of cycles, what that looks like in terms of success recruiting. Obviously, McClendon has proven he can recruit elite talent to you know a school like Georgia, which you know if you look at what Georgia does on a recruiting level each year, year in and year out, it's very very impressive. Now it's a matter of can he translate that and bring in some five star talent to Oregon. Uh, I, I, my guess is going to be that the answer is probably going to be yes, but he's going to go have, go out and have to do that. And is it going to be success he's having in that footprint? In, in I mean, if Oregon can. Make a habit of landing top talent out in the, you know the eastern part of the country, and, and let's be let's be I guess fair about it and say you know Oregon has signed some players from that part of the country, but they haven't went out and got those big big dogs yet. If right. they can go out and McClendon allows them to do that, I mean I think this, that be, the sky becomes a limit for the program, doesn't it? If they can go out and actually start to recruit with some of these SEC schools, I'm not saying that's going to happen, but that's probably the best case scenario. One hundred percent. Uh, I, I think you and I are both in agreement that this is a good hire. There's certainly a lot of upside to this. And to the point of, you know, South Carolina fans, maybe they might be a little okay with him leaving because they were pretty upset at the production at the receiver position. But I also counter by saying, look, South Carolina last season was playing two true freshmen at quarterback, and that's extremely difficult to do. And the year before that, there was – their production at the receiver spot and the quarterback spot was basically a top 25 unit. So it's not like they didn't have success the last two seasons. You know, I just look at this past year and say, look, quarterback injuries, freshman quarterbacks, that's hard to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, All right. Was... Let's dive in now to the news that also hit Friday. Seems like there's always news on Fridays these days. Um, Francis Okoro announced his decision to transfer from the University of Oregon. He is in the portal. He has since acknowledged it as well. Um, wanted to thank Duck fans for their support. Thank the coaching staff and his teammates as well. And Eric, I, I looked at this and said, yeah, it stinks. I mean, that, this is one of Dana Altman's favorite players, I think, the last few seasons. I mean, you talk about 
when when you interview Dana Altman and he's talking about the forwards, he more often than not will, will always kind of throw out some line of, and I'm paraphrasing here, but you know he, he wishes every forward would have the work ethic and the commitment and the team first attitude that Francis Okoro has. And so I, I think this is one that probably stings a little bit internally at Oregon because he's such a good culture guy. But from a production standpoint, I look at him and think, you know what? Oregon probably was going to see someone more likely leave. And Okoro makes sense because he's looking at the position of center and he has to battle and follow Dante, who, let's be real, if, if he's healthy, he is significantly better than Francis Okoro. And chance, and then Chandler Lawson, who took the job from Okoro during the middle of the season last year, is also back and will be a year better, a year more experienced. And so I look at this and say, we felt like we were hearing that everyone was coming back and that was, and that was awesome for Oregon from a continuity standpoint. But at the same time, if someone was going to leave, this makes the most sense because Okoro's got two years left of eligibility, and he's probably fighting at best to be the backup center. I was really kind of surprised, uh, probably more so than I probably should have been, but just it felt like Oregon had its roster. It felt like they were going to have an offseason where they didn't have any you know, transfer turnover. Um, we talked about that in the podcast and how that can be such a positive thing. This is kind of a bummer for a lot of the reasons you just said in terms of he was someone that was really, I think, easy to root for um, with yes. what he went through with his family last year and how difficult that was. Um, you know, from a perspective, he was awesome. Yeah, and that that way too. Uh, you know, I think he was someone that was really easy to, to kind of engage with and, and talk, communicate with, and he was pretty open and honest. So um, all of this is really kind of a bummer. It, he felt like one of those guys that was frankly maybe going to be a four-year player at Oregon, and that's not something that you say very often. Um, over, you know, at any school, but especially at Oregon under Dan Altman, that hasn't been something that's been accomplished very frequently, but he felt like one of those rare guys. So yeah, this is, I think this one kind of stings. This one hurts. Obviously he had played significant roles on previous teams. Um, I think pretty clear that over the course of last season down the stretch and some of this maybe had to do with the family stuff, but that he kind of lost out on some playing time, like you said. So it makes sense in terms of maybe long term, big picture. He was going to have a hard time fitting in, but. I still think this is a, a really good glue guy, culture guy that you lose, and um, it may not be something that bites him too much, but I think at the end of the day, you, you do kind of have to be disappointed uh, that a player like him is leaving because he's kind of done everything the right way the whole time he's been at Oregon. So uh, this one stings a little bit, I must say. Uh, at the same time, I think what you said earlier is also accurate, which is that, if we're being honest, uh, Oregon is looking really, really good in the front court going forward, and it's not just for next season. It's years past that. Um, if we're expecting some of these players to stick around a little bit, I, I just think the ceiling up front is really, really high. And it would have been with a Coro, of course, also. But um, I think that the likelihood, like you said, and you probably know this better than I, but just that he'd started 40 games in his first two seasons, it was probably really unlikely he was going to start 40 games over the course of his last two seasons, wouldn't you say? Yeah, yeah. He has 40 starts in his career, but I don't know if he starts 40 the next two. Yeah, so it, 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 it's an unfortunate, I think, that it comes out this way. At the same time, I don't know if this really, in the big picture with Oregon, changes too much in terms of what their ceiling is at next year. And I guess the logical follow-up, Matt, is do we now take seriously some of these uh, these other possible sit-out tra- city-year city transfers or grad transfers that Oregon had been linked to, but that it was kind of like, 
oh, they're all full at the, at the, at the, at the end right now. They don't have any scholarships available. How are they going to accomplish this? Does this make it more clear that Oregon is going to, going to continue to be active and trying to add to the roster or kind of what's your feeling on that? 100% they'll continue to be active. Now, I don't think they will be active in the grad transfer market unless there's another unexpected departure from, from this team because like you said, the group is still, is still pretty stacked. I mean, your starting lineup, let's just say Lawson is, is, the starting center, even though I think Infali Dante will get it, but let's just give the benefit of the doubt to Lawson because he ended the, se- the season as the starting center. Infali Dante and Okoro kind of rotated together as that backup. Uh, so you, you've got two guys at center and, and, and Dante and Okoro, who, I mean, in Lawson, excuse me, you don't really care who starts. At power forward, you, you still have, uh, Eugene Umari, and you still have CJ Walker at small forward. You, you could go a bunch of different directions. I mean, it could be Chris Duarte. It could be Eric Williams. Uh, it, it could, you know, you, whatever, but one of, you know, let's just say it's, it's Chris Duarte at shooting guard. You then also have, uh, Amari Hardy and that point guard. You have Will Richardson at off the bench in some kind of combination, Jalen Terry, Eric Williams and Addison Patterson. And then you have Luke Ware still coming off the bench. Uh, as well for Oregon as a redshirt freshman. So you still have 11 guys that you are going to be able to play next season. Aaron Estrada is redshirting because he transferred. So I don't see a grad transfer out there that's still available that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I know a lot of people are saying, oh, Oregon's going to go after Matt Harms. He's not going to go to Oregon. I mean, I, it, it, it would, it would, be the ultimate shock if Oregon went after Purdue's Matt Harms because he's leaving Purdue for the exact same reason Okoro is leaving Oregon. He's in search of more playing time. Matt Harms is not going to play over in, in Follow Dante. He, he could maybe play over Chandler Lawson. He's not going to play the power forward spot. No. And so why would he come to Oregon to, to, to play 18 to 22 minutes a game when he left Purdue for because he wanted to play more than 18 or 22 minutes. It's it's just not a right fit. So I don't see Matt Harms being a guy that, that Oregon goes after. And from from there, from a grad transfer standpoint, I don't really see anyone out there that's really worth taking. Yeah, Har- Harms also doesn't feel like a stylistic fit to what Oregon does either in terms of he's like 7-2 and pretty stationary. It's like, hey, we, we kind of saw what Oregon looked like when they ran an offense through Bull Bull a couple years ago, and I don't want to be critical struggled. of they had a hard time, and they had a hard time especially defensively. And Harms is a step back in terms of he's a seven foot two guy, but he doesn't move the same way. And um, I, yeah, I don't think that makes a whole lot of sense. It will be interesting to see what they end up doing with this scholarship um, and kind of how this all plays out. But I think you still feel pretty clear that they're that they're set right now, at least um, to be pretty competitive uh, going forward, regardless of this uh, departure. Now, it wouldn't surprise me if Oregon went out and tried to to get a sit-one transfer, like a Landers Nolly, a guy that that's still out there and one of the top prospects that's available um, from from a from a transfer perspective. You know, Oregon was in that group for you know his top eleven. I know he's um, going to be down a little bit, and, and maybe he's. I think he's. Maybe cut things as well. Yeah, actually now I'm, I'm looking at it. He just released a, a top three that does not include Oregon in it. But um, I still think Oregon will, will will go out there and and they'll check to see you know sit one transfers. There's still some interesting names out, out there and 
And more than likely, though, like if they're going to add somebody, it's a sit one. If, but more than likely, I think that I think they sit and they wait to see what happens. Maybe someone pulls out of the NBA draft and wants to transfer. Maybe someone in August decides to reclassify and wants to go to Oregon. Now, keep in mind, the NCAA is considering allowing athletes to, as long as they get like a 2.3 GPA and they get the proper SAT scores, that they are automatically cleared. So that's opening up a lot of fringe academic guys or a reclass guy. I don't know if I'm going to be able to get you know enough credits or have a high enough GPA and the credits, yada, yada, yada. That's, so it's opening up the door for some athletes maybe to get in when there was beforehand a little bit of uncertainty. And so maybe a reclass guy all of a sudden says, I can get into school now a lot easier than it looked like, and so I'm going to explore this option. And so maybe a reclass guy pops up in August or in July, and Oregon will keep will have a scholarship available to do that because they've done that the last couple of seasons in Fall Dante, Addison Patterson, and, ironically enough, Francis Okora. <laughs> it all comes full circle. So that's what I think is going to happen. Oregon's going to probably sit with 12 scholarships, keep one open, see what the, the landscape is like in the next couple months, and go from there. All right, let's take a quick break. You're listening to the Odds and Audibles podcast. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly, so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. All right, welcome back to the Ots and Autos podcast. I'm Matt Prame. Eric Scopel is with me as always. And, Eric, uh, Friday night was a pretty historic night for the WNBA and also for the Oregon women's basketball program because – the first two picks were Ducks. Sabrina Inescu went number one to New York. Uh, Satu Sabali went number two to Dallas. And then a couple picks later, at number eight overall, Ruthie Hebert became the third Duck drafted in a 12-pick first round by, when she was selected by Chicago as the eighth pick 
of the WNBA draft in 2020. Kind of a historic moment for the program on multiple levels and the WNBA. Yeah, it was a huge night for Oregon women's basketball. And I, I've wrote about this a couple times this week. I might have said it on a podcast. Oregon had never had a single first round WNBA draft choice in its history. Um, you know, in the WN draft only, I think the first draft was a 97. So it's not like we're talking about 30 years of history here, or 50 years of history here, but it's a somewhat extensive amount of time. And, and Oregon hadn't had a first round pick until Sabrina went number one. And then of course they end up with three in the same draft. So very historic in terms of like undoubtedly the most, I guess, productive, um, prolific night in terms of Oregon players being drafted by WNBA programs. Um, a really exciting night too in terms of, there's with the reality is there's not a whole lot of sports to watch right now and the only right. real like sports that were going on and this is televised on ESPN this was kind of honestly this is like one of the things we've been looking at is like oh here's an actual sporting event quote unquote uh and so like yeah well, I think a lot more people were tuned in and watching it and it doesn't hurt Oregon in terms of building that brand further that you turn on the draft and if you watch the first round it's like Basically, almost all they're talking about is Oregon. I mean, the first two right. picks are Oregon players. Number eight is Ruthie Hebert. Um, you know, and, and there was a ton of talk in between about just that group and how talented they were. And um, I think from an exposure perspective, I think that had to be an extremely productive night. I mean, uh, I know Coach Kelly Graves, when he was on the podcast a couple weeks, or I guess almost a month ago now, previewing kind of where he thought players might go, he did kind of acknowledge that he wishes in a better, you know, in a perfect world, he could have played the John Calipari role and he would have been jumping between table and table. But with the way things played out, maybe it's a little bit more detached because it was done virtually. But at the same time, I think it was a really great night for, for women's basketball, for sports fans to actually kind of maybe satiate some of those cravings. And then also, of course, for, if you're an Oregon women's basketball fan, what a night uh, it was to, to see kind of where everyone's futures would be. Um, and of course the one caveat being that some people are probably kind of mad at Chicago right now because the pick <laughs> following number eight where Hebert went to the sky was sitting right there with the New York Liberty ready to pounce and take Hebert, I think, at number nine and yet, uh, and potentially team up UNESCO and Hebert at the WNBA level. That doesn't work out and Frankly, at the end of the day, it probably doesn't matter much, but it would have been one of those all-time cool moments, I think, if you would have seen those two who are such close friends and great teammates and so uh, prolific in that pick and roll at Oregon, uh, you know, really figured that out to a science almost. If those two would have been able to play together at the WNBA level and continue that success, certainly would have been cool, but I don't think that really retracts too much from, from what was a really cool Friday night. So you spoke with all three of these guys, all three of these girls on their – um, conference calls. Let's start with Sabrina. What was just the biggest takeaway from, I'm assuming, probably a very popular conference call? Yeah. Uh, it, let's put it this way. I was, I know I slapped this to Matt last night, which is our work kind of messaging system. I put it, I tried to request a question at like the first possible opportunity and I didn't get in and there were probably 30 to 40 questions asked by different reporters and outlets. So I got to think there were a couple hundred people on that call listening at the very least and certainly a number, a lot of people trying to get in and it kind of, kind of shows you the type of, uh, player she is and the kind of, I guess, interest in her. And a lot of them are New York media too. And of course that's a massive media market to enter. So I think that part stood out and a couple other things. She broke the news on that call that she has signed an endorsement shoe deal with Nike, um, which follows, I think, a couple hours earlier, she announced that she also was signing a deal with Bose. Um, so a couple of endorsement deals for her. She clearly makes some money last night. I think the Nike thing is really significant. There was some chatter that maybe she'd go to Under Armour, where Steph Curry has kind of become uh, the face of, of that 
shoe company and, and she kind of elects to not go that route and, and stick with uh, a company she's obviously very familiar with uh, in Nike, having been a Nike athlete the last couple of years, Oregon obviously a lot of ties with Nike. Um, and I think another thing is that she kind of communicated a, a feeling there's no pressure in being the number one overall pick, which I think a lot of times somebody, you get that designation and maybe you freeze up and it becomes too much to handle. I think you think of someone like maybe Markel Fultz in the WNBA not that long ago who's still kind of trying to figure things out, but he went first overall and it just kind of never worked out. It doesn't seem like Sabrina's getting caught up too much in that. And, and the big focus of her conversation or the questions that she was asked was just, her trying to communicate that she's all about getting better and that she doesn't come with any preconceived notions of being, you know, the face of uh, of the franchise or the team being built around her, that she's kind of coming in to try to figure out what her role is. And it kind of remains to be seen how that team comes together. But I think based upon how it's put together at this moment, it does feel like this is going to be her team, whether or not she wants to say that on the conference call or not. Um, the reality is, is that Liberty went and took her first overall. That city is, is going to be, I think, excited to see what she can provide them. And um, it'll be interesting to see how quickly there's some success. I posted a story on, on Duck Territory earlier this morning about uh, ESPN posted their power rankings. And the New York Liberty are 12th out of 12 teams right now. And that's despite having Sabrina Ionescu on the roster. So clearly there's going to be a lot to prove there. Um, with that organization, but uh, if there's anyone who's up for that for that kind of challenge, it's her. I don't think there's any question about that. Pretty ridiculous that Sabrina Nescu's jersey for the yeah, New York Liberty sells out in what, like an hour? Yeah, something like that. Like maybe less. It was really quick. <laughs> Just nuts. I, I think that tells you uh, a the the you know star power she brings, and she also had a lot of Kevin Durant tweeted at her. I think. Mm-hmm. Um, Kyrie Irving tweeted at her as well. Some popular uh, musicians that are based in the Brooklyn area, New York City area, they've also reached out to her. So, uh, you know, you're already kind of seeing the impact of a once in a generation, once in two generation type player in Sabrina going to the biggest city in, in the country. And I think that's the part that's kind of really exciting and could actually really work out well. Like, if she's able to be the player that I think we all think and expect that she can be, and she becomes a generational talent that she was in college but at the next level, um, that could be huge for her brand. That could be huge for the sport where you have a player of her talent and I think a player who's going to be a huge personal brand, too, because she is somebody that is very composed. I think she's very likable. Uh, she clearly has a lot of awareness about how she wants to um, I guess, represent herself. And I think that's going to be something that's going to be also interesting to see over the next couple of years. But if she can become this big uh, star in a city like New York City, I mean, gosh, there's no better place to, to kind of become that type of player. And she answered a couple of questions regarding that. And again, kind of same thing of, I don't really feel the pressure of that. I'm just there to, to kind of get better, to find my role and, and move forward. But if this all works out, I think best case scenario, this could be a really exciting proposition not just for her and for the women's basketball program, but I think for women's basketball as a whole, because there's no better market to have a star player in than New York. And if she's able to deliver some success and excitement to that area, I think that's going to be a really exciting thing. It's also been reported that Sabrina has, like Eric said, signed with Nike and she's going to be getting a signature shoe. Yeah. And that's the, she would become the first athlete in the WNBA to have a signature shoe. And that, and that was something that I wasn't even fully aware of, and I'm also not a big shoe person, and, and I probably wouldn't be buying women's basketball shoes either. But at the same time, like, yeah, that's super significant. Uh, and, and, again, I think just communicates how, like, I think maybe sometimes we take for granted almost how special this whole thing is of, okay, she wins all these awards, she breaks all these records, but 
it's not just what she's doing collegiately. It's it's sort of what she's doing. I, I hate to use the same word over and over, but her brand is stronger than I think any college athlete entering the pros, especially on the women's side. But like that, I can think of in a little bit. I know obviously Zion Williamson on the NBA was huge, and there are players in the NFL every year that are huge. But what Sabrina provides for women's basketball, I just think is so unparalleled. Uh, and again, that's what made last night so special. It wasn't it's necessarily only about where she went, but it's just about the fact that I think she's potentially paving the way for the league to get so much more exposure. And I think it's going to be really interesting to see when the 2020 season does happen, or maybe it doesn't happen, and we're talking about a 2021 season for her debut. But when she starts playing in the WNBA, it'll be interesting to see what the ratings look like, what the attention to the sport looks like. Does that change at all? I know personally and part of it's because of my job, but I will be watching a lot more WNBA, following a lot more WNBA uh, going forward than I ever have before, and I'm going to guess a lot of people listening to this podcast are going to share that perspective as well. Satu Sable goes number two to the Dallas Wings and goes to a, pl- a place where there's going to be a ton of other rookies on that roster as well. Yeah, and the Wings are in a similar spot to the Liberty. I, I mentioned earlier how um, ESPN projected – uh, the Liberty be 12th out of 12 teams in WNBA. Well, the Wings are 11th out of 12, so they're not much better. And it's the same reason. They're, a to- they're kind of actually in similar spots where they're just in reset mode. They're rebuilding right now. And um, the Wings at one point had five first-round draft picks. Well, they traded two of those over to Liberty, one of which we thought might be used on Ruthie Hebert. It didn't work out that way. Um, but the Wings still did have those three other or those three first-round picks. And one of them went to Sambly. Another one went to another exciting kind of front-court player in Bella Allaire from Princeton. And then... Uh, a South Carolina player who maybe Oregon would have faced off against in the national championship, but Taisha Harris, who will potentially be the point guard of the future um, for that franchise as well. And then they have um, a name that I think some listeners might be familiar of, um, Enrique, and I'm going to bobble the last name here, but Angu Babale. She played at Notre Dame. She hit those big uh, buzzer beaters, a couple of shots to win a national championship a few years ago at Notre Dame. Uh, she was third in the WNBA in scoring last year. So it's not like there's no talent there. They have some talent, but it's certainly uh, going to take a little bit. But really exciting to see Satu go there. Um, she kind of, I thought it was interesting, one of the things that stood out from what she had to say uh, last night is that she actually sees some some real similarities between what she walked into with at Oregon in terms of it's a program with not a lot of history that is a lot of young, exciting players, but they're not really proven um, and an opportunity to kind of elevate it. She sees something similar in Dallas for some of the reasons I just stated, where they've got all this young talent. Um, Dallas Dallas has actually uh, moved over from Tulsa about four years ago, and they haven't finished better than fifth in the Western Conference, which sounds complimentary if you're thinking about the NBA, but then you realize there's only six teams in the Western Conference. It becomes a little bit less uh, favorable. So it's not a franchise that's had a lot of success, but I think Satu sees it as an opportunity based on what she said to uh, – to kind of do what she did at Oregon and to help guide them uh, from kind of the cellar where they've been previously to potentially being a, a playoff team or maybe a championship caliber team in the next couple of years. And then last but not least, Ruthie Hebert and Chicago just ruined the like Hollywood story. But like you said <laughs> at the beginning, um, things kind of fall into place regardless because of the, the makeup that Chicago has and, the, the pieces that they have that that will be around Ruthie Hebert, but she goes number eight to the Chicago Sky, which was one pick before New York had another draft pick in the first round and potentially was going to pick Ruthie Hebert. Yeah, I would have been almost yeah, like you're right, like a Hollywood ending right there if those two could have wound up on the same team. But 
like I've said a couple times on social media and on DuckTerritory.com, I'll reiterate it. It's not a bad spot. In fact, it's probably a better spot in the short term in terms of Chicago was a franchise that almost made the WNBA semifinals last year. They lost in a buzzer beater. Um, if they made that, if that shot doesn't go in, they, maybe they play in the finals and they maybe, maybe we're talking about them as a team that, you know, is right near the top of, uh, preseason expectations. I think ESPN ranked them sixth out of 12 teams. So kind of still in that playoff position, but, but not quite at the top. But I think that the thing that's exciting about this for Ruthie is, you know, she's not going to get a play with Sabrina, but Courtney Vandersloot, who was actually in my freshman dormitory at Gonzaga, she played under Kelly Graves at Gonzaga for four years and, has led the WNBA in assists the last three years. She averaged about nine each of those years. She's kind of like the pre, I don't know, she was kind of the precursor almost to Sabrina in terms of college players. When she was at Gonzaga under Graves, she scored 2,000 points, had 1,000 assists, didn't get the rebounds, but she was the first 2,000, 1,000 player, um, I believe, in in men's or women's uh, for college basketball. She's a tremendous player. Like I said, first team all WNBA. That that could potentially be a pick and roll combination that could be really exciting. In fact, I think when we had Kelly Graves on that podcast um, last month, about three weeks ago, he suggested that could be a landing spot for Heber, that uh, Courtney Vandersloot was kind of pushing for that. So it could be a really nice matchup there, a, a nice kind of combination here with Vandersloot and Hebert in the pick and roll because that sounds like something that Vandersloot does very well as well, obviously, and, and you, you put those two together and maybe this actually works out better in the short term, obviously long term, and and if you're just looking at the uh, Oregon fan perspective, this is not what you were wanting, but I don't think it's a bad fit at all. And probably um, in terms of which players Oregon had drafted, who has the best chance to play in the postseason right away, it's probably Ruthie Hebert based on the team she landed on. So Oregon has a pretty historic moment um, Friday night with three players going in the first round, the number one overall draft pick, the number two overall draft pick, the number eight overall draft pick. Pretty monumentous period here. I'm just kind of curious real quick. What's the long-term impact that this will have for Kelly Graves? Because I mean, is it really going to like significantly change anything? Because Oregon has five, five stars coming into the program next season. So it's not like a, a group of players exceeded their expectations and, and kind of opened the door for Oregon to go out and, and find a bunch of players. I mean, Oregon has signed. I mean, Ruthie was one of the best recruits in the country. Sabrina was one of the best recruits in the country. Sawtu was one of the best recruits in the world from an international standpoint. So Oregon is already an attractive position. Does this solidify, validate? What's what's the impact that this has for from an Oregon perspective down the road? I was just thinking about it. It's probably this has got to be the first time in men's or women's basketball where a, a school has had like that many first round picks and in one draft, having never previously had it, and then signed five five-stars that same cycle. Like, it's kind of a bizarre you're, – you're right. It's a weird circumstance of, like, yeah, they're already recruiting so well. Can this really impact things too much? Like, it can't hurt, obviously, but the reality is Oregon is already one of those marquee programs, already one of those big boy programs, or I guess big girl programs maybe is the more efficient, you know, a, a better word in this scenario. But, like, they're already one of those programs. Does this really help that much? And I think it doesn't maybe push them over the top in a recruitment or push them over the top in terms of their national perception, but it obviously is a really big thing. And I think that's, you know, I, I don't know if they were, if negative recruiting had been taking place for Oregon, but schools can no longer say, well, you go to Oregon and, and 
they haven't had a first round draft pick. Well, that's complete fooey at this point. I mean, they just had three, including the top two picks and actually the second school to ever have picks number one and two in the same draft. I didn't, I didn't get to that one earlier, but UConn's the only other school to have done it before. So that's an incredible company to be in. Uh, I don't think this is really that, that, that significant of a thing in terms of the recruiting or, or even like the, the team impact, but I think this is something where you, you now have this as kind of a shield maybe of like, well, Oregon doesn't put players in the WNBA. Well, go look at what they did recently. So um, I don't know how it's going to impact recruiting. My guess is it's not going to hurt, but I don't know if it's a thing where it's going to be that much of a, a game changer just because they've already established prior to this so much success, so much, uh, I guess, clout as a, a women's basketball program that they were already getting the players that typically a, a kind of a day like last yesterday would have been uh, would have provided you with. Monumental day. We've got a bunch of coverage on it. Eric's got a ton of stuff. Uh, is there anything still to come on duckterritory.com if, if you're looking for even more WNBA draft reaction? Well, the one thing we got to monitor is what happens with Mignon Moore. Um, is, is she going to be signed somewhere? As of the time of this being uh, recorded, the answer to that is no. Uh, certainly a player we thought might be taken in the second or third round, uh, didn't take place. Uh, she still remains out there. I think that's going to be something to keep an eye on. And then we'll, we're going to make sure to get some people on the phone to get some kind of follow-ups on this. I know, um, maybe a Courtney Vandersloot would probably be a good person to talk to. And like I said, having been somebody that actually went to college with her, I may have a decent chance of getting her on the phone. So, uh, that and I'm sure we'll, we'll kind of, rally the troops and, and chat with some other people. But uh, I don't think you can expect a shortage of WNBA or Oregon women's basketball coverage over the next couple of weeks. That's for sure. So look forward to that on DuckTerritory.com. And for Eric Scopel, myself, Matt Prame, thank you to li- for listening to the Austin Audible's podcast. We'll talk to you soon. Adios, amigos.